In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text for today is the Gospel reading, which I've already read. Some of the stories that we have in the Old Testament are a kind of foreshadowing of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in theology, we call this a typology. We get this word from the scriptures. For example, the raising of the widow's son in our Old Testament reading for today functions much in this way. For the Old Testament stories, or sorry, for the Old Testament faithful, these stories, like the ones that we've heard today, were hints and shadows of what was later to be revealed in Christ Jesus. As the prophet saw bits and pieces of God's plan unfold, you begin to get the impression that it was like a giant jigsaw puzzle that they were working with, except that they were missing the picture from the front of the box to see what the whole thing would look like once it was completed. One prophet would get a piece that says, well, the Messiah is to be born of a woman. Another would get a piece to say that he's to come from the tribe of Judah. And then later on, they would get another piece that would say from a specific line in Judah, in fact, from the house of David, would the Messiah be born. Later, God gave another piece to Isaiah saying that this Savior, this Messiah, would be born of a virgin. And then another piece later on from the prophet Micah tells us that the Savior would then be born in Bethlehem. But all the stories in between those bigger puzzle pieces, like the story of the boy raised in Zarephath, were colorful swatches of something that the prophets just could not put all together. But to you, you have been given the fuller revelation that kings and prophets so longed to see. You not only know the Messiah's name, you call him Jesus. What Isaiah would have given for that little bit of information. You have also now the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection to illuminate these Old Testament stories. And so, as I often said, when you read the Old Testament, the best way to open your understanding of what the scriptures are telling you is to ask yourself how the story that you're reading connects to the life and ministry of Jesus, all that he did and said. This is, in fact, how we are meant to read today's gospel. In a sense, this whole story from the, the gospel according to St. Luke is a summary in miniature of the life of Jesus. The parallels are rather striking. You probably already picked up on them, but there is a widow who has lost her only son. Now, while the Gospels don't explicitly tell us this, the last mention that we have of Joseph is, you know, the adoptive father of Jesus. The last mention we have of him is in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is 12 years old and he's left behind in the temple. Much of the church agrees that by the time Jesus begins his ministry, Joseph is probably long gone. Our biggest bit of evidence for that, by the way, is at the cross, Jesus, in his dying breath, hands the care of his mother over to St. John, which would not have been necessary had Joseph still been living. And so with that in mind, 
it is understandable why Jesus would have such compassion on this widow. She no doubt reminded him of his own mother, whose soul would be pierced by the very crucifixion and death of her son at Calvary. Now, we can all identify with this mother's grief in some form or fashion. Now, perhaps you, like this mother, have had to bury a child. Or perhaps you've suffered the pain of a miscarriage. Nothing short of burying your own child and mourning his or her loss shows the full extent of the fall into sin. But in another sense, the world really has also corrupted the way we think about death completely. We sometimes catch ourselves, or at least I've caught myself saying, I guess I don't want to lay that on you, but I've caught myself thinking that it's natural, not to take away from the sadness of it, but it's natural for a person who has lived a long and full life, who's raised a family and held children and grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren, we sometimes think that it's natural when that person eventually does close their eyes in death and go to the grave. This kind of thinking also folds into the evolutionary worldview that permeates absolutely everything around us. Evolution assumes that death is already part of the system. It is how bad traits are removed from the gene pool. But what does scripture actually say about death? God in his word tells us that death was not part of God's original design for the universe. Death came into the world because of Adam's sin and the garden, and death is the congenital disease that is passed down from parents to children all the way up to our first father, Adam. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we have all borne the, the image of the man of dust. Death is the consequence of sin. But remember, I also said that this story of the widow and her dead son at Nain is also the story of Jesus' own life. Last week, we learned how Jesus intimately knew our cares and anxieties because he took on our flesh. He was there at the scene in Nain, and he saw this widow's tears. He heard her weeping. We see Jesus experiencing our lives in real time as we read the gospel. When the funeral procession met Jesus, he went up and he touched the bier, that is, the open casket. And we ought not lose the significance of that touching. After all, today, it is not uncommon for mourners to put their hands on the casket of loved ones at the grave, right before they're lowered into the grave. In fact, pastors, in the little book that we've got to conduct rites at the, at the grave, has us actually placing our hand at a certain point on the casket to bless uh, the remains in the triune God's name. But when Jesus does this, according to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, this act of coming into physical contact with death would have rendered Jesus unclean, just like he did when he healed the lepers two weeks ago, as we heard from the gospel reading back then. And so just like a washcloth, 
used to clean a dirty table gets dirty uh, when it's wiping the, the crumbs and the, and the smudges off the table, Jesus takes his, this young man's death upon himself. He takes the uncleanness from this young man upon himself. This is an example of what Jesus does for each of us when he goes to the cross. Jesus has taken our death upon himself. He has died for us that through him we might have life everlasting. And in taking away this man's death, Jesus has now signed his own death warrant. When Jesus placed his hand on the casket, he not only halted the man's funeral procession, but he put a stop to the work of death for this man. In so doing, Jesus gives us a clear glimpse of what he will do for each of us on the last day. Now, as far as I can tell, there are only three times in the Gospels when Jesus shows us his power of death over life. Only three times is it recorded where Jesus raised someone from the dead. But what a power it is. Consider, if you will, the fact that Jesus speaks directly to this young man. This young man who cannot hear, who cannot see, who cannot even sense that Jesus is there because he is laying dead in his own casket. Jesus goes up to this man and he says to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man must obey. Even though he cannot hear the words of Jesus, he must obey his summons. Jesus recalls this man from death simply by speaking a word. The fact that he speaks directly to this young man and raises him from the dead is worth noting because in each of the cases where Jesus raises someone from the dead, he speaks directly to that person. Why? Because the power of Jesus' word to raise the dead is so powerful that it must be focused. Even death must obey the voice of Jesus. This, then, is a picture of what Christ will do for us on the last day. Christ will call each of us by name from the grave on the last day, and we will, like this young man, obey his summons. He will raise this body from the grave, and the effects of sin and death will be removed. And like this young man and the crowd with him, we will glorify God with a loud voice. This, by the way, is why the church is right for baptism, includes the naming of the child in the right. And we do this as a confession to show that, in fact, Jesus does know our names, and that those names are then written in his book of life. What does Jesus say to us? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is not some religious double speak from Jesus. This is a very great promise that Jesus makes to all who belong to him. And it is the same promise that we see him give and keep to the widow at name. And dear saints, just as this is the story of Jesus in miniature, so also is it your story. For all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ have died with him in the font. By baptism, we have been buried with Christ through death. And because we have died a death like his, St. Paul says, we will also be raised in a resurrection like his. Christ has died and is raised again, and you too who belong to him, who have been baptized into his name, will also be raised again on the last day. For death has lost its grip upon you, because Jesus, by his death, has defeated death. And by his death, he has destroyed the power of death, and by his resurrection from the dead, he has opened to you the way of everlasting life. And at his return, he will call you forth from the grave, never to die again. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.